All right, boys and girls, welcome back to Alabama Politics This Week. I'm David Person. Uh, Josh has slipped away for this segment. Uh, he told me he was going out to get a pack of cigarettes, and he just he still hasn't gotten back. So I guess I'm just going to have to hold it down for me and Josh. So here we go. Uh, we've got Dr. Peter Hotez with us as our guest today. And Dr. Hotez is the dean of... Uh, boy, this is a long title, but he's the dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, Baylor University, the Baylor University. He's a professor in multiple departments. There are too many for me to list. He's also the Texas Children's Hospital Endowed Chair of Tropical tropical pediatrics. He's the co-director for the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development, and uh, and he teaches in the biology department as a full professor at Baylor University. He's also a faculty fellow at the Hagler Institute for Advanced Study, a senior fellow at the Scowcroft Institute for International Affairs. Uh, both of those, I think, are at Texas A&M University. And um, any and Doctor Doctor Hotez, it, it, he's just got he's got all these other titles and and positions. So look, without further ado, we got Doctor Hotez with us here. Doctor Hotez, glad to have you with us on Alabama politics this week. And I want to start by asking you a question that merges. Uh, our concerns about COVID-19 with some of the current news that's happening. Uh, as you know, thousands of people have been protesting across the United States and even around the world uh, related to police brutality and other issues. What impact do you expect those protests to have on the spread of the virus? You know, I think it's really important. You know, it's something I tried to stress, and I'm not sure if I'm articulating it the best way possible, but the fact that, um, you know, to say, okay, now the protests are going to spread COVID-19, the reason that the protests are, are happening is because of the disproportionate impact of uh, adverse health, including COVID-19, on populations that live in poverty, including African-American communities. It's all part of the same same spectrum. I think there's a few things uh, underlying that. I think one is the fact that um, we've got uh, people who live in poverty, live in under more crowded conditions and have greater numbers of people in their household. That makes them, uh, that places them at greater risk. And we know that people who live in poverty have high rates of underlying diabetes, uh, heart disease, uh, renal disease, and uh, guess what? In the African-American community, with all the poverty it's in African-American communities, this has become a big risk factor. So, so that's point one. I, I'd be curious your, your take on that, if you think I'm on the right track here. No, I think you are. I think it's a great point and one that would probably be missed by a lot of other commentators and pundits. The fact that we've got a sort of a, a circular dilemma, if you will. But but having said that, I also understand that there are some scientific practicalities, some medical uh, realities that have to be faced. And so, uh, you know, with that being said, even even as an African-American man who participated in a protest, I have to say I had some concerns myself. I felt 
because of everything that's been happening, I felt my overriding concern was to be at this protest. But having said that, having said that, uh, I do believe that there also are inherent risks that come with making that choice. And so I, I am curious to know if you think scientifically, medically, uh, this is the case. Yeah. And, and just one other point I want to make is we're now finding that the numbers of cases of COVID-19, especially in some of the southern cities uh, and in, here in Houston uh, and other places in the southeastern part of the United States, are already rising even before the protests. So be careful because who know, you, you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to start trying to point fingers at the protests saying, look what those protests did. They, they ignited COVID-19. And don't fall into that trap. This, these numbers were on their way up anyway. Uh, it's not that, the, I mean, it's quite possible the protests are going to act as an accelerant. Maybe, maybe they'll bring it on a little, uh, the steep rise a little sooner and may, may uh, highlight, you know, ex, you know, increase the rise of the amplitude of the peak. But uh, I think we have to be really careful about just just pointing the finger or blaming the protests, because you know how people can be uh, uh, in, in this in this terrible time. Now there are risks, right? I mean, I mean, the good news is the, most of the protests are outdoors, and you know some of the really severe epidemics that we've seen are when you crowd uh, people together. Uh, so where do we crowd people together? The meatpacking plants you've heard about, you heard about the nursing homes. By the way, uh, our incarcerated populations are an incredible risk, right? If you look at the really big epidemics happening in the U.S., overwhelmingly there's our jails and prisons. And guess who we're disproportionately putting into jails and prisons in this country as well. So so there's there's that other racial injustice right there with with COVID nineteen adding the, the health disparity. So being outdoors is 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 good in terms of reducing the risks. On the other hand, if people are pretty close together, the other thing I worry about is you know one of the things about this virus that we learned compared to other coronaviruses, and we've worked on coronaviruses for the last ten years. This virus replicates in very high amounts in the upper airways uh, more than the other coronaviruses so that there's a lot. So if you have it, even if you're asymptomatic with no symptoms, if you have a lot of virus in your mouth, in your throat, and you're speaking loudly, you're going to release that virus into the atmosphere. And so that, that's where one of the big risks are. And that's why we've been encouraging people to wear masks, because if you have the mask on, it reduces the likelihood the virus particles you emit are going to be uh, infecting other individuals. Now, their masks are not perfect, but they're, bit, they're about one of the best things we have. And what concerned me is, depending on where you saw the protests, a lot of people were wearing masks, but a lot of people weren't. And, uh, and especially, uh, you know, places when I was looking at what I saw here around Houston, hot and humid already. And, and you know, we, it's already June, right? So hot and humid in Houston. Who wants to wear a mask? Uh, right, right. But so I am worried about that. So I do think there is a risk that people could contract this virus. Uh, and uh, I, I see, I think it's perfectly fine. I would even recommend it uh, if you've been to those protests to get tested. Wait a couple of days, 
Now, if you're starting to feel sick already, get tested right away. But even if you're not sick, you might want to get tested to make certain uh, that you're not infected. Because if you are, you want to, uh, well, talk to your doctor, but also isolate yourself so you're not propagating uh, the epidemic. But then again, guess what? Uh, where do we have the least testing in our country? In the low-income neighborhoods, right? And uh, so, you know, you know, so you get it again, right? It's, yeah. it's just unending. And uh, it's, it's in a tragedy upon irony uh, between, you know, our incarcerated populations, the fact it's a health disparity, the fact that uh, low-income neighborhoods are often the place that it's the hardest to get testing. Uh, we've got a great mayor uh, here in Houston, and I love him to death, uh, Sylvester Turner. He's a, an African-American mayor, and we've talked a lot about, you know, ensuring that we do get testing done in low-income neighborhoods. So he's been committed, and uh, some members of the Texas delegation, the U.S. Congress, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson-Lee and some others have been really committed to this. So I think we're a little better off than we would ordinarily. But as a general rule, I have to believe that most of the low-income neighborhoods are not up getting the testing that might benefit uh, some of the wealthy neighborhoods. Yeah, you, you talk about uh, low-income neighborhoods, and I think, again, about our mutual friend, Catherine Flowers, who does a lot of work in rural communities and in the rural part, certainly, of the state of Alabama. Uh, I, I've wondered about how the virus began to manifest itself in areas like rural parts of Alabama that Catherine works in, where the population concentrations are relatively low, you would assume that those areas would be, well, at least I would assume as a layman, that those areas would be at a lower, have a lower risk, a lower risk level. What, what do you say to that? How, explain that to me. Well, I think, you know, these are all relative issues, relative situations. So no question, density, if you're living in a densely populated area, you're at greater risk than if you're not in a densely populated area. But, but the virus can still travel and still cause uh, epidemics, even in places with lower density. And even, you know, in some of the areas, you know, it's not, if you've ever, if, as you know, as you visited them, it's not like people are spreading as far apart as they possibly can. People like to live with other people, right? So you... So some of these some of these houses, even in some of the poor rural areas, are still kind of clustered together, and people are having community meetings, they're going to church, uh, and that sort of thing. So there's still a lot of ample opportunity to 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 get infected. So I, you know, when this epidemic started in the U.S., it was a pretty clear urban-rural divide. Uh, uh, although how much of that was due to the fact that we weren't testing areas was not as clear. But now I think we, we can't make that statement anymore. Even though the urban areas are at greater risk, there's lots of people getting infected in our, in our rural areas. And again, you know, I, COVID-19, uh, I, 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 it's a neglected disease of poverty, uh, no question about it, both because of the risk of contracting the illness, the lack of diagnostic, access to diagnostic testing, lack of access to health care, and then the underlying chronic conditions that go along with being poor, diabetes, hypertension, and, uh, and, and renal disease. And these, those are conditions of poverty as well. So, you know, I keep on using the P word there, poverty, but it is. It's, it's, 
it's it's the king of all the social determinants, uh, and that's true no matter where you are in the world. In fact, I wrote a book uh, in 2016 called Blue Marble Health, and I wrote it because you know everybody talks about it when they when they talk about global health, they talk about developed countries versus developing countries. And I, you know, did an analysis, and the really striking part is overwhelmingly diseases of the poor are not necessarily in the poorest, most devastated countries of sub-Saharan Africa or Asia. They're actually in the wealthy countries, the G20 economies, the 20 wealthiest economies. But it's the poor living among the wealthy who account for most, most of our diseases. So the world has changed. You know, this old idea of developed versus developing it's sort of fading away as economy, all economies start to rise. They leave behind a bottom tier of society. And those are the ones getting disease. And uh, it's very tough to get people to accept it. I, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Catherine uh, Coleman Flowers met with the UN Special Rapporteur for uh, Poverty. I think it was towards the end of 2017. And people were looking, oh, what's that guy doing here uh, in the United States? So he got it, right? And uh, we, but... Not many, not a lot of people understand that. We've got 18.5 million Americans who live in extreme poverty, about half the U.S. poverty level. And I think it's 5 million Americans live on less than $2 a day. And now those numbers are going up. And, you know, it's, uh, and it's disproportionate. That poverty is disproportionately occurring among African Americans living in poverty. And, um, and, and with it, a very high level of poverty related diseases. So, and that's the toughest thing to get people to accept in this country among elected leaders. You know, I, if I want to talk about neglected tropical diseases in sub-Saharan Africa uh, or South Asia or in the poorest parts of Latin America, I can, you know, I can raise funds for the treatment of those diseases. But the minute I talk about diseases of the poor in the U.S., the lights go out. And I, and I still don't understand it why. Finally, uh, I got a chance to meet with Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. And he, he you know, I, I gave him a copy of my book. He read it. He totally got it. And now he's just submitted some legislation to the Senate around uh, about how we deal with these neglected diseases of poverty. And I would add COVID-19 to that list. Sure. And I think uh, if I may venture a quick answer before I ask you my final question, because I know you've got to run here pretty soon. Uh, it, it does seem to me as though there is an inclination, especially among, I'm just going to be blunt, the white political elite and the white business elite to maintain the American mythology. I, I don't and, and I think that is I think that is an automatic, almost a uh, just an automatic reflexive kind of thing. But then I also think it's calculated to to a large degree as well. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, American the exceptionalism. Stuff, the kind of stuff we're talking about today, that's an inconvenient truth for them to to, to quote El Gore. And uh, and they don't want to hear it. You know, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Or, you know, or what they do here in te- where I'm in Texas they they want to blame it on immigration. They say that's because all that disease is coming in across the southern border. We got to build a wall higher. But in fact, I point out, you know, one of the big diseases we study that's here in Texas among the poor, it's called Chagas disease. It's transmitted by a kissing bug. It looks like a cockroach. It causes heart disease. And I think it's a big cause of heart disease in Texas. So they say that's all those immigrants across the southern border. And then I point out 
you know, 10% of the dogs in Texas are infected with this parasite. And the dogs are not slipping across the border from El Salvador and Mexico. We have, we have transmitted, okay, bad news is we have transmission of that disease here. But it's tough. It's really tough to, to, to get people to care and accept all this stuff. It is, and 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 uh, you know that that American myth of uh, uh, of exceptionalism, uh, which of course is the real premise is white supremacy and privilege, or I think, just makes it very challenging. So let me ask you, uh, as as I know we have to wrap up here pretty soon, from where you sit, as a scientist, as a as a clinician, uh, do you do you are you optimistic? that we're going to see the kind of resolution of this, the, the transmission of this disease that the White House hopes for and that others are hoping for uh, as, we, as we move further into 2020? Uh, I, I think we, w- we will see resolution of this. And, you know, we're, we've developed uh, two vaccines for this that we're hoping to get into clinical trials. Uh, we're also doing this as a low-cost, affordable vaccine that's widely accessible, uses a simpler technology because, you know, Brazil's getting hammered now and India's going to be affected by this disease. So we're hoping this will be one of the first global health vaccines. And there will be other vaccines rolling out. Uh, and there's no question about it. But one of the things I point out is, you know, the, if you listen to the language of the White House, they always kind of go into this sort of magical thinking that all we need is a new medicine or a vaccine, and then poof, the disease disappears. If you remember, first it was hydroxychloroquine, then it was remdesivir. Now we're going to have the vaccine. And, and it's not so simple because the first vaccines that roll out are going to be probably partially protective, not completely protective. It's not like we're going to have these vaccines and all of a sudden we can go back to exactly what we were doing before. It's going to be a gradual, slow process. Certain vaccines are going to work better than others. Certain ones might be better for older populations. So we're going to have to be very mindful of what technologies are out there and have lots of communications. This is, it's not going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to be like it was in 1956 where uh, for the talk vaccine, when they brought all the journalists to global, to uh, University of Michigan auditorium, they pulled back the black curtain and revealed the results and everybody went dancing in the streets. It doesn't work. The times have gotten more complicated. It's not going to work that way anymore. So things will get better, uh, but this virus is still going to be with us for a while. And, and African-American populations living in poverty are going to be vulnerable and they are going to get it the worst. So, you know, and having, you know, having leadership to explain that, protect, protect our vulnerable citizens is going to still be of paramount importance. Mm-hmm. What's the, uh, fi- my final question, doctor, what's the one thing that you would like for our listeners to come away with as we continue to move forward here? This is the, we're still in the early part of June, but as we continue to move forward in dealing with COVID-19, what's the one thing you want us to, you think we need to know right at this point? I think what we need to know is uh, even before the protests, the virus numbers were already going up in the southern part of the United States. I think that that's that's pretty clear. Uh, and while the protests may accelerate things a little bit, don't don't let people get away with 
pointing fingers saying the protest caused this virus or 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 caused it to come back it, it we already knew it was coming back anyway and and protect yourself and your families and protect your community and make sure that testing is in place wear a mask when you're outdoors uh and, and outside the home and and practice frequent hand washing because that's all we have right now and uh and just be able to communicate and look after your uh, your brothers and sisters and your friends uh, because it's going to be with us for a while and 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 some and we have leadership and then there's leadership here in Houston we got a great mayor looking out for the African American community here in Houston and a county judge terrific county judge Lena Hidalgo um, other places are not so fortunate and and you may be on your own in some instances. Right. Oh, I I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this also real quickly. The vaccines that you talked about, you think they're going to be out by the end of the year? No, sir. I, you know, I know we're hearing that, but uh, I don't see a path by which the vaccines are out at the end of the year. They're going into phase three trials starting in the summer. The first one in phase three trial starting in the end of summer. Uh, I, I think we probably, we're probably looking at the middle of 2021 before we have those vaccines roll. I may be wrong, but that's how I see it. Um, and, uh, uh, and even then that'd be a world land speed record in terms of time for release. Uh, so, you know, you're, everything is so conflated with the 2020 presidential election uh, and, uh, and, and then some of the biotechs talking to their investors and shareholders the misinformation is just flying out the window. And, uh, and I worry that it's going to confuse people. It already confuses people. It already confuses the scientists. I can only imagine what's confusing the general population and what that means for, you know, we've got a big anti-vaccine movement here in the United States already. And I worry, you know, some of this language speed makes it look like we're rushing it. We're not rushing the safety, but it, it probably means not until the middle of next year. Dr. Peter Hortez has been our guest for the Alabama Politics This Week podcast. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Hortez, for joining us today. It was a real honor, sir. And, uh, and let's keep in touch because, you know, this virus does interesting things. And, and, we, and it, we're trying to keep up with all the information. So the things I'm saying today, a month or two months from now, may not be accurate anymore. So I'll look forward to coming back at some point, if you don't mind. Thank you, Dr. Hortez. We, we look forward to it, and thank you for that. Okay, all the best. All right, take care.